All right, so we're still walking through sanctification. And tonight can be difficult if I don't explain myself well, so I'm going to try to slow down. I'd rather get you the overall principle than to work through all the passages because there's a lot of passages to deal with this subject. This is where we were last week, and if you were here, hopefully you saw the relationship between fear and love and faith and how in many ways you're talking about the same thing because fear is how we relate to the Lord and fear is what works obedience in our life. But the very definition of love for God is obedience to His commands. And so you can see kind of how that's just, you know, different sides of the same coin when we talk about our fear of God as well as our love for God. We're communicating the same thing in not so much different ways. Then we also talked about faith. And faith is nothing more than obeying God. That's all that is. I trust God, therefore, this is how I do. This is how I think. This is how I live. So all three of those words, if you remember, we're talking about obedience to God's command, whether you're talking about the fear of God, the love of God, or faith in God. In many ways, you're just communicating obedience to God. Because if you do any of those three things, you're obeying God, right? In fact, God says, if you don't obey me, you don't love me. So he's moved it away from emotions primarily and put it on obedience. Now this week, we've got to move on. Uh, see if I can find where we are. So we're going to talk about the indicative imperative. And I'll explain those better, so don't worry about laying a hold of that. But basically, when you talk about indicative, you're talking about a fact, just a statement. An imperative is a command, right? That's all that is when you're talking about indicatives and imperatives. In the Bible, especially the New Testament, is divided up in such a way. Uh, we're in the book of Romans, and I'll show you in just a second. The first, uh, first 11 chapters primarily are indicatives. It's what God has done for us through the gospel. You get to Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. It's not the first command in Romans, but basically it is. And so he lays out 11 chapters of what God has done for us in Jesus. He gets to chapter 12 and he starts reeling off the commands. Now, this is what I want you to do in response to that. So here's Zimic's definition. The fact of what God has done or what he has promised to do becomes the basis or incentive for us to exercise our responsibility to do. In other words, this is how this is laid out. Because of what God has done, it answers these questions, what I need to do. Question number one. Because what God has done, that answers the question, what I need to do. That's easy to understand. Because God has loved us and given His Son for us, therefore I offer my life to Him. That's what I do, right? It also answers the question, why, right? I offer myself to God because He has first loved me when I was unlovable. So it tells you why I'm doing... Somebody says, well, why did you forgive them? Oh, I forgive them because I have been forgiven in Jesus. That's why I forgive. Okay? So it tells us what to do, forgive. It tells us why we do it, because we've been forgiven. And then lastly, it answers the question, how? Because if you do a good job forgiving, invariably you're going to get asked this question, how in the world can you forgive them? Now at that point, you answer the most important question, how is it that I forgive them? Oh, you don't understand, it's not really me forgiving them. The only reason that I'm able to forgive them is because of Christ in me. 
Does that make sense? So these are the three important questions that the fact and the command, how they work together. It tells us what I do. It tells us why I do it. And it also answers how. Because in a spiritual way, and I think you'll see this in the passage, Jesus lives inside of you. Now we do say that to children. You need to ask Jesus into your heart. And you can argue about if that's a good way to put that all day long. But the spiritual reality is Jesus is in you and he is the hope of glory. You have been raised from death to life. You've been created as a new creation in Christ. And Jesus dwells within you. And therefore, when you obey in extraordinary ways, the mature Christian realizes, well, this is not really me because I would have never done this before Jesus did so much work in my heart. And because he's done so much work in my heart, I now do these things. Does that make sense? All right, so let's look at some passages. Let's first look at the past, and we'll look at a very simple one out of the Old Testament. So this is past things God has done. Deuteronomy 7, 6. Moses writes, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God, look what he has done. He has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. And if you remember sanctified, the reason you're a holy people is simply because God picked you. So now you're in a relationship with God. He's chosen you to be a people for his own possessions out of all the other peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number for you are the fewest of people. But because the Lord loved you and he kept his oath or his promise to you, which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God. He is the faithful God who keeps His covenant. He keeps His loving kindness to a thousand generations to those who love Him and keep His commandments, but repays those who hate Him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with Him who hates Him. He will repay Him to the face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today. In other words, you don't get to the command until you get to verse 11. And what am I supposed to do? Verse 11. Why am I supposed to do it? The first few passages that I read to you. God loved you. God chose you. God kept His promise to you. He's talking about the nation of Israel. He's done all these things for you. Therefore, you shall keep my commandments. You see how this works? He lays out all these things that I have done as motivations and reasons for verse 11. Therefore, keep my commandments. Okay? So this is one of the simplest things. So let me, let me read back through it so you can see the flow. You're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be His own people, His people for His own possessions out of all the other peoples on the face of the earth. He says to Israel, The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you are significant or more in number. For actually you were the most insignificant or you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord delivered you or brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is a faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations, to those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 11, I'll skip down. Therefore, 
you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments that you are in which I am commanding you today. Indicative imperative. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Therefore, this is what you are to do. Make sense? Whole Bible's laid out that way. Okay? God doesn't simply say, do this, do this, do this. He says, I am this and this and this and I have done this and this and this. Therefore, you are to do this. That makes sense. All right? Now, we're still in the past. And when you get into the Gospels, if any of you have spent time in John, John is hyper-spiritual. His language is difficult to understand. So he likes to use the word abide when he's communicating these things. So this is the, how I've been communicating this on Sunday as far as the vital union that we have in Jesus. How, like marriage, when we come to faith, we've been made one with Christ. And because we've been made one with Christ, there are some expectations or commands that we're given. But it also, because we're one in Christ, we're able to do these things that we normally could not, did not want to do before. Does that make sense? John 15. John uses the illustration of a vine. Miss Burma will get this one. I probably should just let her explain this one. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Okay? This is what God has done in Jesus. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so it will be more fruitful. You're already clean because of the gospel, the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. There's that relationship. We've been made one in Jesus. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Here's a relationship. I'm the vine, you branches. He who abides in me and I in him, relationship, look what he does. He bears much fruit for apart from me, what can you do? Not a thing. Now, if you've ever worked in the garden, that, that illustration makes perfect sense to you because you just can't go out there and cut off part of the plant and expect it to live. It only lives if it's connected to the root. Now, this is more of an indicative because we really had not got to much of an imperative at all. But he's trying to teach you that because you are tied to me in a spiritual union, vine and branch, you are able to bear fruit to God. If you were to be able to break that union apart, which you can't do, you couldn't do a thing because apart from Christ, you can't do a thing. So this is what I'm saying. Some of these things you have to understand there's a spiritual reality to it because the only way that you can do it is Jesus in you because it's more, these are more than just motivations. God simply doesn't say, because I've loved you, you love. Because if that's all there were to it, you couldn't love. If God says, because I have forgiven you, you now forgive, you can't do it. It's only Christ in you, the hope of glory that enables you to do these things. And that's why he uses this abiding language. So it's more than just motivation. You don't get to go around going, well, I'm just going to forgive everybody because I've been forgiven. Well, yes, that's the command. But if you actually do forgive, it's because of the power of Christ in you. We can't do anything apart from him. It's this connection spiritually that enables us to love, to forgive, to serve, to do all that wonderful stuff. So we're talking about things that illustrations fail. John came up with the best. 
with the vine and the vine dresser and the branches. And that does communicate our life source is Christ. So you need to draw comfort in this because the sins that you're wrestling with, you need to understand, no, He didn't give you the keys and let you run out the door and go fix it yourself. He didn't simply say, go and do this, and now you're sweating bullets, swat knuckled, trying to do this thing. You need to understand it's Christ in you that's going to enable you to do the very thing that He's commanding you to do. Okay? Uh, John 15, 6, he goes on. Um, now, watch what comes out of this union that we have with Jesus. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch dries up. They gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We're talking about prayer now. Faithful prayer comes from the relationship that you have with Jesus. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove yourself to be my disciples. can't bear fruit unless you're in Christ. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Now abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I keep my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things have I spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Your joy comes from your union with Jesus. See, all of this is because of what God has done. In other words, because He's made you one with Jesus, now therefore you are able to obey God, bear fruit to God, have joy in those sort of things, pray in a way that glorifies God, and that's not possible apart from Christ. It's simply not possible. Okay? Again, John is the most difficult. I think Paul is much easier but I still think you can see the picture there, especially with the vine and the branches. Okay? All right, let's go to Paul. Again, Paul's the grammarian. He's, he's going to be precise. He's going to use the indicative, what God has done, or the facts, in relationship to the imperatives, what we are commanded to do, in Romans, he'll use old self, new self. Colossians, he'll use old self, new self. Ephesians, he uses old self, new self. And then he also uses flesh and spirit to help us show this relationship. Now, open your Bibles to Romans 12, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Actually, let's start with 8. Actually, let's start with 5. Romans 5. I think. You know how it is, Jeremy. Start with Romans 1, verse 1. I'm just kidding. Be here all night. All right, here we go. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified, right? Now, look at verse or chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And if you remember, the rest of chapter 8 from Sunday is about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is what God is doing. We still haven't got to anything you do. You get into chapter 9, it's about the sovereignty of God and election. Again, something God has done. You get all the way, and he talks about Israel in between there. And you get all the way to chapter 12, verse 1. And here comes your, technically your first, or not technically your first command. 
Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Romans 12.1. The whole book's laid out this way. Okay? He says, I've justified you. i filled you with the Holy Spirit. I've set my love on you in eternity past. I've done all these things. You get to Romans 12, and he says, all right now, offer your whole life as an offering to God. In fact, I think it's the NIV that says, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, which I kind of like better. That's about the only passage in the NIV I like better. In view of the mercies of God. Since God has demonstrated so much mercy toward you, offer your life to Him. What are you doing? Living your life for your own glory. Why would you do that? God's done all this, right? So this is Paul's approach. I'm going to tell you what God has done, then I'm going to tell you how you're supposed to live. All right. Now, let's look at Romans 6. You can turn in there in the text. I've got it on the board if it's not too small for you. But I'll show you the difference between what we're supposed to do in relationship to what God has done. Because Romans 6 is that exception within Romans where he weaves these things perfectly together. Okay? Romans 6, verse 1, what we say then, are we to continue in sin so that grace would increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, here's the responsibility. He's asking the question, how in the world could you ever live in sin? You're responsible. But look what he precedes it with. How shall we who died to sin? How do we die to sin? By putting faith in Christ. Remember when he died, I told you this is kind of hard. When he died, you died. And when he died, the old man died. Your sin nature died, right? And so Paul says, well, if when Jesus died, you died. If Jesus died, the old man died. How in the world are you going to continue to live in something that's dead? You have responsibility. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. He starts it out by weaving these realities together. When you put your faith in Jesus, your sin nature died. Now here's the responsibility. How in the world are you going to continue to live in sin? That doesn't make any sense. Now the second one gets easier. In fact, all of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is something God has done. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, responsibility, so we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, he lays out the gospel. This is what God has done. And then he gives us the command, now walk in newness of life because of what God has done. Since Jesus was raised from the dead in a new resurrected body, now I want you to walk as if you've been raised from the dead. It's hard to understand because we're talking about spiritual things. But he never simply says, I want you to live differently now. You're like, how in the world am I supposed to live differently now? You live differently now because you've been born again. You've been born of the Spirit who dwells within you. He motivates you. He empowers you to do different now. Now go do different now. It's like this. Here's how you sum up all this stuff. Be what God has already made you. You need to be what God has already made you. 
And here's why. Because you live as children of a king and you dwell within a new kingdom. And when Christ returns, that will be the culmination of that new kingdom and you will live precisely right. But you've still been equipped to live right today. Does that make sense? Let me do the next one. Verse 5. Again, the gospel. If we have become united with Jesus in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that our body of sin might be done away with, responsibility, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. All right? For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Jesus, we believe that we'll also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. All that God has done through the gospel. Verse 11, here's what you're supposed to do. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God. All of that's based on the gospel. All of that's possible for you. There's none of this business, I just can't help it. That's ridiculous. You can tell yourself that all you want if it makes you feel better, but it's not true. Because through the gospel, we've been set free. Right? Not saying it's not going to be a struggle. We'll talk about that in a minute if we have time. It's a terrible struggle because you live in between two realities. You live in a fallen, dark, and sinful world, but you're a child of God. That's difficult. God knows it's difficult. But one day we'll be removed from the sinful, dark, fallen world and we'll live in the kingdom of God. And it will no longer be difficult at all. But we can't say, because I live here, because I live in a rotten neighborhood, I act like all my rotten neighbors. That, that excuse doesn't fly. I do realize they'll get the best of you sometime, but you dwell in your own house within that rotten neighborhood, if you want an illustration. You don't have to act like a rotten neighbor. You don't have to get drunk and carry on and hoop and holler and still cuss and cheat and lie and da-da-da-da-da. I don't care if all the other neighbors do. You don't have to do that. And it's kind of that reality. One day you're moving out of that neighborhood. And one day you're going to move into a neighborhood where everybody's good and godly and in Christ. And it won't be a struggle anymore. But today you live in that struggle. but you still can glorify God because of who, what He's done in you through the gospel. So we got what God has done and we got what we're supposed to do. Colossians 3. If you want to turn there, you can. It doesn't matter. I've got it up here for you if you can see it. Now, this is one of those cases where Paul weaves things together, okay? So let me ask you the question. Here's my two questions. I'm going to ask you, is this what God has done or is this what you're supposed to do? This is what I circle. 
Let's assume you have been. Therefore, you have been raised up with Christ. Is that something God has done or something you're supposed to do? Something God has done. You didn't raise yourself up with Jesus. Okay? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. God do that or you do that? God did that. You're not going to raise yourself up and reveal yourself with Him in glory. He's going to do that on your behalf. Now we've got these things right here in the middle. Keep seeking heavenly things. Who's supposed to do that? You are. You're supposed to set your mind on heavenly things. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Who's supposed to do that? You are. God hasn't done that. But see, he's boxed it in with all this stuff he's done. I've done all this for you. Now, set your mind on heavenly things and get them off worldly things. Now, that's a difficulty. That's a very difficult thing to do because, again, you live in a rotten neighborhood, right? Where everybody's talking about worldly things, godless things, and yet we hear the command, set your mind on things that glorify the Father. Get your eyes up off this world and get them on the kingdom to come. And that's something that you have to repeatedly remind yourself to do because we get buried in worldly things. We get worried about worldly things. God's like, don't, no. Set your mind up higher because of what I've done for you. Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Is that responsibility or something God has done? Responsibility. Consider your body dead, immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, greed, all of that's idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come. Now this is not something he has done. This is something he's going to do. And it comes as a warning. You need to stop with the sinful stuff in your life. Why? Because the wrath of God comes. Right? And in them you once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who is being renewed. Da 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 da. Who does all this? You do. You're responsible for these things. Why? Well, one reason is judgment. But another reason is who's renewing you into the image of Jesus Christ? God is. Therefore, start living holy lives because He's making you holy. Make sense? Y'all still with me? 
So this is a relationship all the way through the New Testament. This is what I've done. Now this is what I want you to do. Because I am renewing you on a daily basis into the image of Christ, I want your mouth to reflect that. And don't say, I just can't. That doesn't fly. Because Jesus lives in you. Okay? Colossians 3.12 So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, who did all that? He, he did. You weren't there. But because he's done all that, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, who has a complaint against anyone, just, sorry, just as the Lord forgave you. So we get a whole list right in the middle of two things God has done. He has chosen us. He has loved us. He has forgiven us. Therefore, you put on a heart of compassion and kindness and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Make sense? Whole Bible's like this, okay? Now again, it's not a simple command. You do this. It's a command that we do by faith knowing that if Jesus dwells in me, He is compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving. So I have the Son of God living within me. I have those characteristics within me. It's not like they're not there. I just have to submit myself to Him and allow Him to do these things in my life. Do I fail? Yes, today. With that list, I was reading and I'm going, whoo, this one hurts. But I also knew the moment I did it and immediately began repentance in my life. Immediately. And I've talked to him about it about three more times today because I'm just not, I hadn't set it back down yet. Because I was like, I got to preach on this tonight. And I got out here in left field. Come on. But you do realize I wouldn't even care if Jesus wasn't in me. I wouldn't even care about what I said today or did today. I wouldn't care. But it broke my heart. And you go, oh, you're so, no, 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 not me. Christ in me. And I remember these commands. Okay? Beyond all these things, put on love. The list goes on and on and on. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Father. Giving thanks. Lots of responsibilities. So those are all based on God's past dones. But let's look at a few not too many. We'll look at future. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How are we doing on time, dear? Uh, it's 15 okay. I think you're in Romans maybe still. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, 50 through 57 is about one subject, okay? So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 50 
And then when you're confident that you know what I'm talking about, you can stop me and go, oh, he's talking about this. You ready? Now I say this, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you, in mystery we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on the immortality. What am I talking about? Somebody stop me. Ezekiel, Talk. Ezekiel the rapture. <laughs> no. Better answer. Resurrection. The resurrection when Christ returns. I mean, we're going to be made new, right? And he keeps going on and on and on until he gets down to 58. Look at 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. See how that works? Jesus is coming back. Go work your can off for His glory. And, you, and somebody might go, I've been doing that so long. Am I just wasting time? And he's like, are you crazy? When Jesus comes back, you'll know you weren't wasting a single second. Go work your can off for the glory of God. Jesus is coming back. And when he appears in the sky, you'll hit the McGreedy on the way out that you'll be so excited that you just have spent your whole life serving the Lord. You know? So again, this is what's going to happen, so this is how you need to live. Whole Bible's laid out. 2 Corinthians 5. This one's a little more difficult. It's kind of mixed up. Okay? I'm going to start in verse 6. Paul writes, Therefore, being always of good courage, 2 Corinthians 5, 6, always being of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in the body according to what he has done, good or bad. So what's the command? Aim to please him. Aim to please him. In what? Everything. Everything. Why? Because we're going to be judged. Because you're going to be judged in your deeds, good or bad. See, that one's just kind of mixed up bowl of soup. We get the point. Because this is what I'm going to do in everything that you do, aim to please the Lord. Conversations, work, taking care of kids, doesn't matter what you're doing, aim to please God. Because we'll stand before Him one day. Second Peter 3, keep going to the right. Verse 10, 2 Peter 3, 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. 
Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to His promise, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless, blameless. What's coming? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And it's not pictured in a pretty way. Therefore, how should you live? Godliness. Imperative or, yeah, indicative imperative. This is what I'm going to do. If you're taking notes, I'll, look, I'll let you look at 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 3. If you want to, again, that's John. He's tough. So here's a summary statement right out of the book, kind of edited by me. In summary, union with Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the blessing of eternal life are different ways of describing the same reality. We have become a new creation in Christ and we are a part of a different kingdom, a coming kingdom. We've died with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. The old man has been crucified with him. The flesh has been crucified. The body of flesh has been put off. These are eternal truths. However, the practical outworking of this new life is one of tension. What we have become in principle, we are now exhorted to put into practice. But the power to practice comes from faith. The indicative is received by faith as well as the imperative to obey. It's all of faith. But when you consider all that he's done, you understand his commands should be taken to heart. Here you go. Here's the tension. We talk about this tension all the time. Colossians 1.13 he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Galatians 1.14 Jesus gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age. So He transferred you to the kingdom, but you still live in the present evil age. And that's why it's so stinking hard every day. You still live in this present evil age but in principle, he's transferred you to the kingdom to come. 